Hey, this is Brett Miller with another episode of Wood Talk. Thanks for joining us today. Um, today we've got very special guests, guests in the room from Oldwood Floors, David Old. David, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself. Tell a little bit about you, your company, background, and what you guys specialize in. Thank you, Brett. It is an honor to be here. And Brett asked me to come do this, and that was my, my reaction. I'm honored. I'm here with my daughter, Mika, and my, my very best global installer, Marcus Haven. And um, we're making ingrain floors. We've been very stubborn about it. Uh, real quickly, we grew up on a ranch in northern New Mexico. I got out of aviation to go back to the ranch and raise my kids. Started making floors by mistake for a guy named Don Imus. That's a, that's, a, that's a story in itself. And set up a website, and pretty soon we were asked to do Douglas Fir in Tbilisi in the Republic of Georgia and an opera house in Korea. And then people asked me if I'd ever made end grain. And that's how we got started in this end grain business. Wood blocks, butcher block, end grain. What's the new one? Make a radial cut. Radial cut, we hear butt cut a lot, which is about my least favorite thing in the world. Yeah, we don't like calling it butt cut. But so, but that's what, we're, that's what we're doing. And we've gotten very specialized. We make plank floors in the plant also. But we've really gone after the end grain as a, not just a specialty, but pretty much a passion. We're pretty crazy about it. What I love about that, being a wood guy, I've been in this industry since 1991 as an installer, as a finisher just so happened to find my way into other aspects of our industry, I think, like a lot of us have. Yep. I selfishly love what you guys do. I love the product that you represent. And what I love about it is the cut, the ingrained cut. I think for anybody who's, who sees the old historic cobblestone roads that were made of ingrained wood flooring, it would defy their their logic of how water and wood don't mix and how could you dare put an ingrained piece of wood on a street and walk across it we're arguing about that very thing right now about should we should we make a waterproof version of this and i say yes i said the streets of the streets of boston were paved with pine blocks why not there's still a street somewhere in milwaukee that's in a little neighborhood that's like the last wooden street in america and it has been there for 115 years Hmm. Uh, yeah, you, you've heard the old story about Edgar Allan Poe was in Boston and he hated the cobblestone streets and he wrote a, there's a passage somewhere on one of my competitors' website, it's a paean of praise to the wooden streets. They took the cobblestones out, which were very noisy with the iron bands on the wagon wheels and they put in wood and it became quiet outside. So that's one of the big things we push. Hotels like that, we do hotel lobbies, and we frequently hear the front desk people say, it's so quiet. And it's better, and it, but it still rolls. You can still roll your little suitcase wheels, still roll across it, unlike carpet in the lobbies. So let's talk about that really quick. And I, I think this is why I selfishly want to see end grain flooring take a much larger uh, role within the floor covering industry commercially. Let's face it, you walk into a restaurant or a shopping mall or anything like that, and you see a wood floor, nine times out of ten, it looks like crap. They're beat up. It looks bad. It gives wood a bad name in general. Therefore, we move into this whole world of wood look that doesn't, quote-unquote, scratch. Yeah. And it's sickening. It's yeah. sickening to see, and I think our industry's been battling this because of all of these wood floors that have been put into shopping malls yeah. and people with a lot of money walking across them and seeing, that's what a wood floor looks like with all this wear. I don't want it. 
Yeah. Because they consider their own personal lifestyle well, to be and just that's, as chaotic. And that's why the whole roughened wood, whether it's circle sawn or hand scraped or whatever it is, that's that's really that's the reason these have gotten so popular. They wear better. They do look better. Hand scraped, wears on the ridges, starts to look terrible after time. We we do a lot of Douglas fir floors in the Rockies. And, you know, we, we're always like we sort of promote wire brush because it does seem to hold up about the best. But I go into restaurants that have put my floors in that are 10 years old and you look at them and go, oh, I wish they'd redo it. That's where guys like Marcus make their living. Nice. So, yeah. The beauty of end grain is the way it's cut. We are laughing a little earlier. You know, the, the scientific term for the way it's cut is the transverse cut. It's, mm-hmm. it's the, the butt end, the butt cut from the tree. Um, but considering, and I think we had a conversation a while ago about the strength. If you just look at a straw, and that straw is laying on its end, it doesn't take much pressure to smush that straw flat. However, mm-hmm. if you put that straw upright, it could likely puncture a hole through your skin if you try to push yeah, it Yeah, it will. Flat. Like, like an egg, I also use the egg. You know, you crush it one way easily, but the other way it's very strong. The wood's made up of what are called tubular vesicles. And under an electron microscope, that's, that's fascinating to alien topography. You look at it and go, what the heck is that? But the other big thing, Brett, that you and I have been talking about also is the health features of that. Uh, trees are basically vertical pumps. And they're, they're designed to pump nutrients and, and liquids up and down. There's even vesicles, I understand, that are basically designed to move small powdered solids. And it's pretty, pretty weird stuff. And I've been told by some chemists at the Forest Products Lab that they don't really understand how it works entirely. But if you think about a floor that's pumping air and moisture up and down... That's a healthy thing. And we talk about uh, some of the health attributes of ingrain, that it's sort of self-drying, which is why we have so much trouble with it. Right, Marcus? Trying, because the stuff dry, it gets wet fast, it gets dry fast, and that's, those are some of the challenges to it. Yeah, it definitely has the ability to change moisture content rapidly with the environment. Uh, you can visibly see it within 20 minutes in some areas. Right. right. Yeah. Now, we, we just had a project in the Middle East. Marcus was, thank God, was there to help us with where we had some glue issues. And the panels went down perfectly. And in about an hour? Hour, hour and a half. It uh, started to change on us. It, it, the glue hadn't set. And the panel was absorbing moisture from the air. And they were beginning to crown upwards in the middle which set us running around this enormous building in the Middle East. You can picture that one, looking for heavy weights. And one of, one of the guys found a, a pallet of cement, 25-kilogram buckets of cement, three floors down in a basement, which we had to go run and get to weight the thing down. So there's, there's, it's good and bad, and that's what Old Wood's been doing all this time, is trying to figure out how to make this stuff behave. Um, anybody with a chop saw can chop a piece of a two by four off and glue it to the floor by all means have at it that's how it's done you want to do your own house the hippie guy with a two by four and a chop saw tell him go for it it'll work (laughs) trying to try to do big commercials a different thing though absolutely so on the commercial side one of the purposes for using end grain over a traditional saw and cut piece of material is its durability the ability of that product to withstand Cars and street traffic. Factory use. It's factory a, we, use. We sell a lot of blocks to factories, to Alcoa Aluminum and GE turbine facilities. The turbine facilities are fun. 
Uh, the reason they like them, they, they use a three-inch block. I think we've done some as thick as six inches is because they can move these big t- uh, hydroelectric turbines around on them, and they can move them. And when they set them down on the wood, it's got some absor- shock absorption. So, the, so these large castings don't break. And that's why the big foundries liked wood blocks. The, the shock absorp- absorptive characteristics of the product, if you move a, a, an electric motor with, with mounting tabs, and this thing weighs 8,000 pounds, they're moving it with gantry cranes, if you set it down wrong on concrete, you stand to break off. This was told to me by one of the factory managers. You break off a tab, now you got this crazy welding problem on your hand. The wood is forgiving. So it, hmm. it does. It's, it's forgiving, yet very, very tough. So concrete probably being the only other covering or floor that would be used in those commercial-type settings. Mm-hmm. You use anything else, it's going to be damaged it also because of the vertical back to the tubular vesicles in the structure of the wood it just doesn't wear like it doesn't scratch and wear like a board does it doesn't have so what we're we're doing with a board you've got spring wood and and summer wood which are the rings and the rings of the wood and it's the the soft wood in between that where the tree's growing and that's the part that wears that's why you get wood gets ridgy looking with time vertical grain if you have some species that have big rings, you can actually see a little scalloping f- from that that action. But in general, the rings are close enough together, and all the weight's vertical on those rings, and that's the way God designed that tree to take a load. That's right. So hardness, um, hardness of ingrain flooring. Obviously, we in our industry many times incorrectly reference the Janka scale yeah, for hardness no, of species. It's and it's real. a very useful tool. It's a useful tool for selling solid wood flooring and yep. how we're going to specify it. In general, it's about double. And we did testing at the Sandia National Labs. You've been helping me out with that, Brett. And we have been doing some pretty phenomenal stuff with, the, with our government paying the bills at the Sandia National Labs. And they are very clever folks because they don't look at it as just wood. And they don't just look at a test as the only test. And we are st- so we've done straight-up Janka testing on quite a few end grains. And in general, they're twice as hard. If a pine is at 600 pounds, the end grain is, at about, is about 1380. Hmm. So it's a little more than double in 1380s getting into the oak range. So it's, it's considered as hard as oak when you make a pine end grain. The, diff- the other differences are a little harder to quantify or qualify, and you and I have talked about that. We are looking at other aspects of what makes a floor durable, and it's the elm versus the oak. The, or the, I'm sorry, the willow versus the oak, the ability to bend and the ability to give versus just straight-up strength. And I'm open to suggestions from the audience. If people have got suggestions for me, I'd love to hear that. How can we test that durability aspect? What does carpet do? I don't know. Carpet's not hard, but it certainly lasts a long time, too long. That's a really good point. A lot of the finishes that are used, obviously, um, some of the factory finished floors using very hard finishes, just because it's hard doesn't mean it doesn't Sometimes scratch Sometimes they don't the wear same. as well. On our, on, right. our pine plant, on our pine, Sherwin-Williams has been really good with us lately. We have been working with them, and we have this conversation about strength, hardness versus flexibility and durability. That's pretty hard stuff to, to put numbers on. It is. Interesting. Uh, well, we've got some ingrain flooring in our training center, and it, every year, seasonally, it tells us when it's time to crank up the humidification systems yeah. and when it's time yeah. to pull out the dehumidifiers. 
as you were saying earlier, Marcus, installation challenges that come with installing ingrain flooring. It's not just laying down a strip floor. It's not just laying down a wide plank floor. You have to understand the the product and the environment it's going into. We just rewrote our installation guidelines, and we included a lot of information on ingrain flooring in there. We could have wrote a whole book on it, but we wanted to at least make sure we held a nod at the important aspects of installing this cut of flooring what suggestions can you give or, or what, what are some of the things that you do when you're installing these high-profile jobs like you just came back from the Middle East with to ensure success? And obviously, after you leave the job site, there's only so much you can do. But from the installation perspective, preparation and installation. Uh, first off, uh, recording and uh, taking down data. You want to know what you're humidity is the relative humidity the moisture content in the concrete you want to know where that's going to be acclimation is important but needs to be controlled you don't want to acclimate this stuff too fast because it does take on moisture much faster i found when compared to a plank product floor prep is the number one step you do need to have a very flat floor to start on Ingrain, if you leave pebbles on the floor and they get caught under it, it's going to cause that ingrain block to crack and break during installation or post-installation. So you have some different aspects. So it's it's going to bite you if you, you don't take the proper steps during the process. I'm a stronger fan of site finishing it always. David has played with the pre-finished process and under ideal conditions – probably going to work every time but the site finishing allows you to to blend it and make it perfect you know their product right now that they've got when we sand it on site is completely seamless you know you you can't tell there's any variation of piece to piece it's seamless and beautiful it tends to even absorb some of the dust back into the joints so i've found less filler is necessary for it and uh, played with a couple of different finish processes. It absorbs a lot of fluids, no matter what kind of finish. So I like to stain my product or oil, pen- you know, penetrating oil finishes first, and then after that, you can look at the possibilities of water base. On top of that, I've gone in both directions, and I think we get good protection and good wear out of both directions. So. David Old jumping in again. Sorry, Marcus, excuse me. Uh, something we have learned that's really important, and I'll share it with the, the community at large, I want to share it, is that it's better to put a light coat of stain, anything that's going to color the wood, put a light coat on first, light to medium, let it absorb overnight and let it dry. And then come back with the next color coat. The reason for this being that because of those tubular vesicles, again, those little soda straws, the stain just falls through the block. As if it falls through the block, heading for the back of the, of the block, and I'm talking sometimes two inches of wood, it can disappear into the back of the wood and it leaves the surface very dry looking. Our, we learned that in our showroom with a half-inch mesquite. It got one coat of stain, it looks great, top-coated, hey, beautiful floor. S- six months later, it's kind of blotchy and dry looking. And, what it, and so the solution is light coat of stain, let it dry a little bit, and then come back over with another light coat. And that, that, that stain acts as a backer, keeps the, keeps the next coat from falling through the block. 
Sorry. If by with stain, if you put a drop of ebony stain on a half inch block, it'll go through the back. It'll go right through the right through the whole thing, which is good and bad. That's right. Excuse I, I'll me never for interrupting. That's perfect. No, and I appreciate it. And that that advice is key. I think it. It. I mean, I'll never forget when I was first getting into this industry. An old timer up in Fort Collins that I worked for. I think he's still around. I, I learned so much from from him based on just being a craftsman, not just doing a job, but actually yeah. loving the job you do. And I'll yeah. never forget, he showed me a piece of wood, and I don't know that it was ebony, but it was a dark stain, and he put it on just a drop, and then a couple seconds later, he showed me how it came through, and that was when the light bulb, for me as a young punk kid, the light bulb turned on and said, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Those are vessels. They're yeah. just tubes. I yeah. could And flat, and, and otherwise with the ring in the way, when you're putting on flats on, it can't, it doesn't penetrate because the tubes aren't running that way. The right. Straw, the straw can't, you know, the soda straw doesn't leak out the side. So to your point about maintenance and, and I've seen it. I mean, we, we, it, I remember it took several coats to start building up that film build that you really wanted on that floor. And I think that's probably one of the Biggest challenges, totally different story altogether, but biggest challenges is getting consumers to understand what a natural penetrating oil is. And on ingrain flooring, those natural penetrating oils do penetrate deeper, and it can make that floor appear to be what some people would say thirsty. It still needs another coat of finish, especially from people that are used to a film forming finish. That's just why having a guy like Mark is having you know real NWFA certified installers around presenting these opinions is important because sometimes the manufacturer they just go oh, yeah you're just selling stuff or you know well i have a guy on my crew that has done a lot of floors and he says you know fill in the blank whatever whatever that guy says so that's where having a guy like marcus around and um he's been marcus has been great working with us trying to really figure these things out and we need to keep writing them into the book so, Marcus, one of the things, and I know you've been through all of our certification programs through Inspector, um, one of the things that we have added over the course of these years, and now with our new installation guidelines out, it kind of completes the set. Sand and finish guidelines were written in 2016, and through all of our training programs, we did include sanding ingrain block and the different processes involved. One of the key elements, there was nothing out there on it. So what we wrote was based on the processes that we went through in our training center to determine best practice. Number one process that we determined and we discovered, and I, I think I've run just about all of this by you as we before we published it, but you can't skip a step in that sanding process. We typically teach, you can skip grits, you can go from 60 to 80 to 120 with traditional species. Today's finishing techniques don't allow people, especially in those higher grits, to do that. With ingrain flooring, you cannot skip a, a beat. Matter of fact, a lot of times you've got to stick with the same grit and just change direction in order before you can even move up to the next grit in sequence. Marcus, do you have any special tricks of the trade that you use and go through in order to get that floor properly prepared for the finishes you're putting down? All right. So, so my sanding process is first step is flatten the floor. And ingrain is very hard, so you're likely going to start at a 36, maybe a 40 if you have a pretty flat install. Uh, the steps is every belt you need to run all the way through. I typically go to 100, hitting every grit on the big machine. On the edger, I can 
I can usually start a smoother grit because they're a little more aggressive on the end grain. So 36 is going to dig a hole. But if you start at 50, you're going to burn through a lot of paper, but you won't have as many scratches to pull out because you definitely will miss pulling scratches out if you jumped a paper, just a paper. This is a more relevant to concrete polishing is where I'd kind of relate this. You know, you won't notice the scratches until you start getting higher into the grit sequence. And now with the use of these multi-disc, multi-head machines, I always finish out with a multi-head and I will match my final grit or I'll even go down a paper and then walk back up to, you know, so I'll make Joe to 80 grit, run 100 grit, run 120 grit. And I've almost burnished this floor. And part of the reason I do that is to kind of close up the vesicles that are going to absorb all of my finish or stain because it will take four times as much stain to stain a floor. In the, in the pre-finishing process where we're, you know, we're going through a UV line, I can't tell you how many times you get it, you get it and you've got everything set up and you've spent a lot of time and money to make for us to make these panels and it goes through the UV line and all of a sudden there's the dang lines. You know, somebody somebody skipped a grid on the sander or like you said something important, Brett, was both directions. Um, and we'll we'll run in through the big sand big three head sander. We'll we'll go this way, that way, and even turn it to a forty five just to try and be sure you obliterate those. But boy, that's a curse for all you folks out there sanding this stuff is you get, get, skip a grit, get to the end and go, oops. Yeah. It's definitely not one that you can just hide a scratch mark either. I think with a lot of the traditional cut wood, you have a scratch mark. Sometimes it can be hidden within the grain and it, 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 a lot of times you skip a grit, sometimes two grits, depending on the species and you're going to pull it right out. But in grain is so hard that you're, and that was my experience also, you start going with that machine, you miss that grit, you miss a spot, and you're, you're going to find it. Especially so Marcus, I wanted to ask you this. Is drum sander versus like the logler that we were using a little while ago, how do you feel about the two? Can you, do, would you recommend people use both? Or Absolutely. To- you do need to use both. The multi-head system is not an option with ingrain. It is a requirement. And I believe that's what we have in our guidelines. I, I don't know that we are as strong of verbiage as requirement, but yeah. that is that does make the difference, having that multi-head cut. And also finishing with a screen. We, we typically tell people to try and, you know, if you don't have the multi-head and you think, you know, we're not really installers, so we got Marcus around. But, it, you know, we, we typically try and finish it with a screen to, to, and a random orbital sander and the screen, you know, 110 screen is pretty decent you know don't need to go too fine except we are exploring this this whole subject of burnishing and there again marcus has brought that to the table of actually burnishing in especially with the oils Mm -hmm. we're working with woca quite a bit right now and there's great companies out there uh, there great great deal of similarities between them but they've been very engaged with us and the whole subject of burnishing is is pretty pretty necessary nice i do find the burnishing Stepping back into that, uh, the commercial uh, restaurants that I've done with the ingrained floors, when we burnish it, it's a nearly zero maintenance floor because we glaze the finish into the block. You know, and that's 
with the multi-speed buffers has made that really easy. We use some weighted buffer plates to increase the amount of heat that we're generating and we play with a variety of different heads and pass processes to get us to that. So we actually are heating it up. We want it to glaze and harden as it sets so that by the time I'm done applying a oil finish, the floor feels dry. It's not cured, but it feels dry because it's gotten heated up and we pull very little oil off the floor. So just to sort of change direction a little bit, but it's based on everything you were just saying. The process of installing, the process of properly acclimating the material, the process of sanding is typically going to take you at least twice as long as a traditional sized floor, if not longer, just based on finish application. You've got more finish that you're using. Mika, I want to just, in, in your court, when it comes to selling, what challenges do you have in educating the buyer or educating whether it's commercial, whether it's whoever, what challenges do you have in selling them on this the process, not just the product, but the process? Sure. So selling people on it is not the hard thing because it's such a unique, visually different product that it really sells itself. The problem is nobody knows about it. Like you said, it's one of those things that it's been around for a very long time. Uh, Historically and traditionally, it's always been a, a commercial floor, manufacturing floors, stuff like that. But from a design perspective, very few people know about it. Once they find out about it and we get to have conversations with people and show them a sample and and discuss, like my dad mentioned, um, hotels love it because it's quiet. It absorbs sound, the click clack of women's heels. Uh, it doesn't become an issue because it just it absorbs that sound and disperses it instead of reflecting it. So the biggest thing is being able to have open, honest conversations with people But yeah, the biggest thing is nobody knows about it. And once they find out about it, it sells itself. But we have to get to that that point in the the conversation. Nice. I I think like you were saying, there's this there's a point of realization that it's a different floor. It's not a plank floor. It's not a carpet. Some ways it's more like a tile than a, than a wood because of the installation method, um, especially with our ingrain panels because they're larger panels and you're laying the mastic and you're laying several square feet per panel. But people, it's almost like a little knowledge is dangerous because you get these guys that they just assume they know it like expansion gaps. And that's a, that's a big thing I wanted to throw out to you here in this podcast was that you've got to take expansion and contraction into consideration. You were talking about humidifiers coming on and heat and so on. The floor is going to move. It can move if you let it move. But if you don't let it move, it's going to move itself or something else, period. It, it can blow up a wall. It, it can pop glue. It can split blocks in half. Um, it, it's really got to have the edge room. How much room would you say around the edges, Marcus? Greater than your thickness of the block. So I would like to see a three-quarter inch gap around any vertical obstruction. Yeah, and it, it's tough because the blocks aren't really going to slide outwards on the glue but it just overall, it's like spreading your fingers. If you hold your hand up and spread your fingers, it wants to do that. And so like your fingers, when you spread them, it tends to bow upwards. And so, and that's a destructive force. It's a vertical force. So that, that can be very destructive. Um, we encourage the use of cork sealers, powdered cork, uh, cork strips, 
how often do you use them is the question. How do you put them in without ruining the lines of the room? You don't want to, the main sight line through the front door of the guy's house. You don't want a cork strip running back to the bedrooms. So you've got to put, you've got to place them artistically. They don't really have to be on a grid. They don't have to be geometric, but they've got to be there. The beauty of that is cork can add an aesthetic element. I mean, that that's mm-hmm. something that rather than, um, leaving just gaps in the floor, which, you know, <laughs> yeah. sometimes you need to do depending on the time of the season. But Mika, how do you sell that? I mean, that's something that if you've got a, a floor and you need to build in quarter inch gaps throughout this right. floor. Well, and Brett, that kind of goes back to one of the challenges. It's a very, I hate using the word overwhelming floor, but it's overwhelming. It can be very complicated. Um, now, the good thing that you just mentioned is the versatility of it, because there's a lot that we can do with the design, whether it's a grid uh, or a bricklay pattern or a herringbone or, or whatever it may be. I keep using the word conversation, but that it's so important. We have to be really, really involved with this because it's an easy floor to screw up. Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges with this when we're talking to folks about it is we start getting into the really complicated things about installation and glues and grid patterns and expansion gaps. And people go, well, forget it. Their eyes, I'm not gla- doing their this. eyes glaze over and they say, okay. People to the point where we've been at shows, you know, we do, we show this product all over the world. I've literally had people tell me to go do something not nice when you tell them how to, how to install so, it. Literally I've come back and Mika has been fuming at a, at a, at a show in the booth. I've, I don't know where those in the United States are where, but somebody had told her to go, you know what herself, because he's like, who do you think's going to do that? Anyway, wow. and, and who we think's going to do that is people who like wood, people who want a gorgeous floor, people who give a rat's little furry tail about what they're doing. So I think one of the biggest keys is, Mika, to your point, selling the product, I mean, the audience is not the same. We're walking a show floor down here, and there's buyers that are interested in production. I was at the Builder Show recently, and some of the builders there are high-end builders that do look for high-end product. A lot of the builders that are there are some of the largest in our country, track home mentality, and they've gone from real wood to fake plastic stuff for the only reason that it's cheap and it's a good entry level that they can get in. Um, Selling something that's a high end end grain in comparison to selling a plastic floor that's being promoted as waterproof is two completely different audiences. Um, Somebody that thinks that spraying a hose on their floor is normal (laughs) lifestyle is not the same person that would own an end grain type floor. Well, you might be surprised. We've definitely had that conversation where we have commercial clients like hotels, restaurants, and we Garage, come in. Garages. Garages. Got a garage and, we, and Telluride going. And it, it's interesting because, in. yes, you're right. It is absolutely a different customer. It's a different audience. Um, but we can't, you can't pigeonhole this into saying, well, it's just going to be this person. Because a lot of times it is. Uh, that's a whole nother conversation. But our clients are JW Marriott, Starbucks, um, really fun boutique restaurants in places like Aspen, Colorado. We just finished a really, really cool one um, in a mesquite end grain. And that was specifically chosen because of the location. Um, it needed to be a floor that could withstand salt and muddy ski boots and snow boot just 
pounding it day after day in a town like Aspen, Colorado, and still have a really, really pretty, unique architectural design element to it. So those are our, really our customers. Um, and we do do some residential stuff. We do sort of mid to high range residential projects. Uh, but that sort of goes to the folks that are willing to take the time to learn about this and put it into a project are spending a little bit more time and money to to really focus on not just the flooring, but the design of the overall interior of the home or, or restaurant or hotel or whatever it may be. It's perfect. I think one of the things our industry has, has kind of shot ourselves in the foot with over the years is is somehow allowing the end user to under to think or believe that if you scratch your floor, it's a bad thing. Or if you have uh, cupping or a gap, that it's somehow a bad thing. And, and I think what's beautiful about end grain and about, well, just wood in general is that that's the beauty of it. It's a natural living product. Absolutely. And when you've got a scratch, it's a memory. You know what when it happened and why it happened. Brett, I love to I love to ask them if they've watched Downton Abbey, because and if they've ever been in Williamsburg, Virginia, have they ever been in uh, beautiful old homes in Philadelphia? Have you ever been in a place with a really cool old floor because they all have cracks in them? Well, let's just every go, one of them. Let's just go back to the cobblestone street. The street that's made of ingrained wood, water and wood's not an issue. It's the it's the it's the product. It's what it is and how it's put in and how it's put in. Absolutely, yeah, that's um, you don't have humidifiers and dehumidifiers on the street. Yeah, but as long as it's put in properly and it's it's the the perception of how it's going to. One of the things that got rid of of wooden streets was the advent of cement curbing, concrete curbing. Because they sort of were inventing curbs and they were trying to get the ladies and gentlemen up out of the muck and mud and the horse manure on the streets. So they actually were building some concrete curbs and the wood blocks were breaking the concrete curbs. And that was one of the problems they, they had was the expansion and contraction was one of the issues with wood blocks. Hmm. So we got to deal with it. We have to take care of it. In big factory floors, uh, we did a 50,000-foot floor back east for, for another gentleman. Um, and... Uh, they, they were complaining because they had some ladder cracking across a finish, and it was a, some sort of hard polymer finish. I don't know what it was. It was their choice. But it was in a large printing press. And they called me because, well, this thing's we're getting a ladder cracks. Well, I, got, I had to go back and go look at it. I had to fly across the country to go inspect. And I was deeply concerned. But I got there, and there was no gaps between the blocks. It was put together tight. Our blocks were a lot better than the other blocks. They fit better. They were more square. They were more carefully made and better dried in the first place. But the ladder cracking was happening with 50,000-pound forklifts, huge forklifts driving across this floor. And it was the stress that was cracking the surface, not not the blocks. The blocks were actually fine. Hmm. So, you know, it, it's all about the details of the installation, which is where what you've done with the guide is so important and having skilled installers. And it's not genius work. It shouldn't be scary to people. I mean, literally, you could do your own kids' living rooms. You know, go, go ahead, do your, do your kids' bedrooms. I tell people, do it. It's not that bad. You may have some issues, but it can be beautiful. It can be great. But for fine work, if we're going to do the restaurant, we're going to do the hotel lobby, we're going to do the museum, we better do a good job. Well, we could go on for we hours could, about yeah. this topic. I so much appreciate your guys' passion and what you guys do to the in, in, in the industry, for our industry. I look forward to working with you in the future for, for more testing, the more we can do to showcase the architect and design community, why yeah. it's good to like, specify Like Mika wood. said, it's a conversation. That's right. 
thank you guys so much for being here and your time and what you bring to the industry. Thanks for having us, Brett. Thank you, Brett.